0: I hope there's not that many, because there's these ones over here as well. Sorry? Yeah, this one first. Okay, the first question. Are you sitting comfortably? Then then I'll begin. (laughs) I like the addition of Anapana to the party climbing meditation mountain. To me, she is a Cheshire cat. Halfway up, she is so contented; she just curls up and purrs. Only her smile goes to the top, and thanks for your your teaching and guidance. That again was a wonderful little simile, you know, from English literature, Charles Dickens. The Cheshire Cat sort of appeared on a branch of a tree and kept on vanishing, really sort of suddenly. And I think uh, Alice said, "It's really quite." Uh, uh, troubling that you come and go so fast. And so the Cheshire cat said, okay, I will disappear slowly. <laughs> and so the Cheshire cat, they call it a Cheshire cat because its cat looks like it's got a smile on its face. And so I think it was just the head which appeared, not the whole cat. But anyway, the head started to disappear. You know, first the ears disappeared, and then the, the cheeks disappeared, and then the eyes disappeared, and the rest of the head disappeared, and whiskers were left, and then the whiskers disappeared, and then even the lips disappeared, leaving only the smile. I remember Alice commenting, things what was it getting more and more peculiar. I've often seen a cat without a smile, That's the first time I've seen a smile without a cat. (laughs) But that was actually a simile. It's hard to get similes for what happens in deep meditation. But that's a pretty accurate one. It's like as the, the breath disappears, still it leaves the happiness, the piti sukha is left behind without anything being happy, but just the happiness by itself. You have some weird experiences in deep meditation, And the only problem about that is it's real, but it's because our language is deficient. We just don't have the words to describe such things as happens in the mind. And that's one of the reasons you struggle, you know, to try and find similes. Of course, later on during the retreat, I'll be many similes of what happens in the deeper meditations. And when you sort of, you know, hear a simile like um, Charles Dickens and the Cheshire cat disappearing. It's a very accurate one. So that's why you, you keep talking about that. You've still got the happiness, but there's nothing really to be happy. Anyway, what is meditation? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is meditation? The meditation... Okay, let's do this simile. I haven't done this simile yet. I've got some water. Okay, Prem, come up here. You're my um, assistant for this demonstration. Now I have this cup of water. And the job, as you've seen this before, so you know what I'm up to. Now my job is to get this water to be perfectly still. And that's the meaning of samadhi. That's the result of meditation, to get stillness. With the stillness comes the power of mindfulness as well. So is this water still yet? Why? I'm not being mindful, am I? I now being mindful. Has it got still yet? Better than before, but not. Not yet, okay. So now I'll concentrate. I'll put forth effort. (laughs) (laughs) It's worse. (laughs) Now that is so true. So how can I hold this perfectly still for long periods of time? It's so simple. All you need to do is to Put it down. Have you ever heard the word let go? Don't attach, renounce, put things down. You just do that for just a few seconds. It's so easy. Now is that water? Actually it's still moving, but, yeah. Okay, now have a look. Yeah, It's perfectly still. No effort at all. So easy. Can we have a round of applause for my assistant today? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, <Prim. laughs> But that's how we meditate. And the water becomes perfectly still. And Once it becomes still, if you look at, say, the lake uh, or the pond, whichever you wish, wish to call it, and it's not a raining night and there's no wind, you can see these beautiful reflections of the moon and the stars and the heavens above, only when the surface is perfectly still. If there's any movement in it at all, then of course it distorts the image. And that is a simile which is used a lot uh, in Buddhism, in meditation circles, that once your mind is perfectly still, it reflects the truth with no distortion. Somebody asked me to write this down today. I think it's in those quotes that um, Noria was writing down in the box to put up on the board later on, and it's a very common saying of the Buddha. Um, yeah, Samadi Pachaya, yata buddhiyana dasana. Is that the one which you put down there? Yeah. So. Samadhi, the stillness, is the cause for seeing things as they truly are. So that's one of the reasons why, that when there's stillness, you have a chance of seeing things accurately, the way things truly are. So that's actually why, that's what meditation is. Learning how to let go. Learning how to be kind and be still. And once one gets that, the stillness is the meditation. And how to be still is learning how to put things down, to be able to observe but without holding it and worrying about it. One of the problems is when in meditation retreats, once you put the cup down and you say, is it still yet? (laughs) Oh, no, not yet. Come on. I haven't got... Two days are already gone. No, come on. Come on. Okay, that's what meditation... And how do you know you are meditating? It's because you feel the mind become more still, less thoughts, less worry about past and future, because when you stay in the present moment, it does become pleasant. Not just present, but pleasant. In other words, you change the R to an L. It's a pleasant moment awareness. This it's nice hanging out in the present moment. It's like you really are on holiday. How many of you come here? It's just really tough to be able to get here. And then when you leave here, you've got other things to do and lots of other work. Right here, this is a retreat. You don't have any work to do. So really, you should be able to have a nice rest here. Is having a rest a wonderful thing to do? An enjoyable thing? That's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't like the word concentration for, for meditation, because that's too much hard work. And sometimes, I remember years ago, I saw one of my friends, and he went off to um, Club Med over in somewhere in South Thailand somewhere. I said, what are you doing, you know, the Club Med in you know, the Club Mediterranean? And he showed me the program. Wow, it was just so tiring. You had activities all day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And this was supposed to be your holiday, having a rest. And many people's holidays get so busy. But you come here, and you have the opportunity to rest. You can meditate by sitting in the hall, if you wish. You can meditate by just sitting on a nice chair with a cup of tea, just watching the trees grow by the kitchen. It's you know, total relaxation if you are uh, brave enough to give yourself the opportunity to rest. A lot of times, people feel guilty about resting, which is one of the reasons why I keep talking about this: Take a rest, relax to the max. And then you find, you know, your body gets healthy, you feel good, because the stress is taken out, and also your mind becomes very still. And with that stillness, instead of that tiredness, then you really understand what Club Med really is. Club Med Serpentine, Club Meditation. <laughs> Which is a much better way of spending eight or nine days. And sometimes when you do go home, and then people say, where did you, you, had a holiday. Where did you go? I went to Perth. Where did you go to Margaret River? You see the beaches. Did you go and see the chocolate companies down over there? What did you do? No, we just came to this place. We weren't allowed to leave. We didn't have any evening meals. <laughs> and then people think, first of all, you're crazy. But then you say just how peaceful it was. And people see that, you really have rested. This is a holiday. This is why this is what meditation is, to have a rest from the busyness of the world, and eventually the rest from the busyness of your mind. With all your wisdom, compassion, and years of experience, do you always have enjoyed deep meditation? I don't have any meditation. I don't possess it at all. Do I enjoy it? Of course I enjoy it. All types of meditation: Deep meditation, very deep meditation, extremely deep meditation, deeper than ever meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this question. Have you seen the the schedule? What are you supposed to do at four o'clock or is it 4.30? No, four o'clock, then. Rise with gusto, it says. And this question is, I want to rise with gusto. What room is he in? (laughs) (laughs) And I said that years and years ago. This has got itself incorporated into the schedule every time. Gusto is that with some energy. There's one thing which Ajahn Chah taught me. He said, when you wake up in the morning, just you know, jump out of the bed. Yay! And then have a look at the clock. Oh, my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but get up first of all. And then, I don't know, that sometimes you look at the clock and think, oh, this can't be right. You know, it's too early in the morning. I can't get up now. If you feel like getting up, get up. You can always go to bed at another time. And anyway, look, uh, you can always catch up on your sleep in your coffin <laughs> when you pass away. <laughs> but now you've got sort of some life. So, you know, just give the, the body a chance to have a nice and uh, in the morning times. Honestly it is one of the favourite times of the day because it's like fresh and not many people like getting up early in the morning. That's why I like getting up early in the morning. It's like you have the area to yourself. And it's clean, it's quiet, and people aren't so tired at the end, at the beginning of the day. It's the end of the day they get tired. So I think it's a wonderful time you know, to get up early. And it is true that most people get enlightened in the morning time. <laughs> you know, when the sun comes up and the first... Light of dawn then ah you see the Dhamma and you become fully enlightened. That's why these days not many people become enlightened. They're all <laughs> 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 asleep in bed. Anyway, I oh yeah, okay that's okay, that's those ones. That's yesterday's ones all all done. Now today's new ones. Actually there's well, there's a few questions in here. Let's see what we've got. I'd love if my husband can find peace by meditation. But he said he already meditated in his works. <laughs> concentration or concentration of four cushion. I don't know. Or he meant, is it right? No. If we don't do concentration, it's stillness. And when we translate you no know, Samadhi as stillness, it's a much easier thing to understand. Many people have effort and can concentrate. They can become professors and they can just read books, or they can have this immense effort of like sports people. And some of the hard work which sports people do, getting up early, training all day, pushing their limits, You can actually feel amazed at the sacrifice, but being still is a totally different ball game. Being still, being able to sit here and just let everything vanish and disappear. So your husband certainly has not done that. He can't sit perfectly still for a couple of hours, blissing out. If he can, then okay, he doesn't need to do any more meditation. he spends hours on his phone when he's not working (laughs) so so why don't you get him a nice little cushion one of these cushions but just um, looking like a mobile phone (laughs) and say please spend hours on this (laughs) and see if that would work a lot of people have excuses, but you know, if you go home and you know, you, your husband sees that you're much more peaceful, really joyful, and healthy too, then that impresses, impresses him. And he realizes that you know, there is something to this meditation which maybe he hasn't figured out yet. But remember, sometimes it's hard to teach your husband. So what you can do is you can be much more sneaky. Simple things. Remember this Malaysian Buddhist who would you know, always come to our temple. She came and told me, I know my husband would enjoy meditation. I know that you know, it would be great for him, but he just won't do it. He's not interested in religion. I said, simple. So you know one of those books which I wrote, the Opening of the Door of Your Heart book. I said, buy, buy one of these take it home and tell your husband, keep your hands off this, this is a religious book, you can't touch it. And of course you know what happened next. She went shopping somewhere and he's an Australian guy and he said, she can't tell me what I touch, what I don't touch, this is my house, I don't care if it's religious, whatever it is, I'm going to touch it. And so he opened it up and started reading (laughs) and he, he read the whole thing. And apparently he comes every week now. That reverse psychology does actually work. Even one of our presidents of our Buddhist Society, some years ago, Rachel, her name was, very, very um, competent woman, and I invited her. You know, we need someone president of our Buddhist Society West Australia Committee. I think you'd do a wonderful job. And then she replied, "I'm really too busy. I've got so many uh, things I have to do." And then I told her, actually, you know, that's really true. I shouldn't have asked you. So look, if you reconsider, I'm going to ban you from being the president of our Buddhist society. You can't do it. So look, you know, out of kindness to you, you know, don't even think about it. You can't be president of our Buddhist society. No way. <laughs> I really laid it on the line. So she rang up a couple of weeks later and said, i put in my application to be president. And she was president. <laughs> and I said, you really fell for that one, didn't you? And she said, Oh my goodness, yes, I did. So that's the best way to get members of our committee. You brainwash them. <laughs> you look at them and you say, Prem, you know, it's important that you serve. You've got so much amazing qualities. So come on, Prem, look into my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, uh, where am I going with this? Uh, so that's actually just, you don't tell your husband what to do, you convince him what to do. And if you're a much much better wife, this was the, the husband convincing the wife, that old story. He always wanted to come on one of these meditation retreats, but only for a weekend. This was years ago, and he kept asking his wife... Can I go on a meditation retreat? And she said, "What? On a weekend? Don't you realise you've got to do the clean up the garage? We've got to take the kids to sport. You know, you promised to uh, fix up this thing over in the kitchen. Of course you can't. It's too much work. You can't go." And he was very smart. I said, "Okay." And then the next time, there's a retreat scheduled, Can I go on a retreat this weekend? No, you can't come. Mother's coming uh, on the weekend. We've got so many things to prepare. We've got to fill out the tax forms, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But he persisted. Every time there's a retreat, he asked, can I go on a retreat? And she said, no, no, no. And then one day, he asked, there's a retreat on this weekend. Can I go on a retreat? And she said, okay, you be selfish and go on your stupid retreat. And let me do all the work here. He took that as a yes. <laughs> but what happened next was a beautiful thing. Was that when he came home, he was like, you know, you have a car that's always running rough. It's like fine-tuned. And she really saw just what a wonderful husband, a much better husband he was after he'd been on a retreat. That he told me, he said, next time there's a retreat... He didn't need, even need to ask. She gave him the money and sent him off. Because <laughs> she could see the value in it. When you see the value you know, in what happens to people when they do a retreat, it's worth it. You want them to go. So your husband or your wife comes back an improved model. What are the four methods of letting go? Yeah, I was I was going to give a talk about that, wasn't I the first time? Anyway, the four methods of letting go. The first method is like they call it chaga. It means generosity, giving. That's one of the reasons why a lot of time people don't understand what giving is. Uh-oh. <laughs> He's writing it down. Because <laughs> you know that sometimes that people they ask can I give a donation to the nun's monastery, but I, can I just put my name on there? That this building was given by Prem Mihirigala. That's not generosity. That's buying advertising rights for your ego, when you think about it. And we don't do it that way. Now, many of this building's here. It was donated by so many people. And it's not just, we don't think of donations as money, time. I love saying this. I said this only a couple of weeks ago at the previous retreat. The floor you're sitting over there, on, on over there. That was uh, uh, completed at the very last minute. We helped. I, I was in charge of all the building, and the person who was uh, organising the building for the building company, I asked them, when will it be finished? And they said, oh, no, January, are you sure? And she got really upset at me. Are you questioning my professional uh, abilities? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> said certainly by, by January. So, okay, I thought March maybe. April was Easter and we are going to hold uh, the retreat or the opening ceremony on the Good Friday and the retreat would start immediately afterwards. Was it finished in time? No, of course not. This floor hadn't been laid yet. We had all the bamboo. We couldn't get the, the builders, actually, to lay the floor. It was Friday afternoon. And they were off on their you know Easter holidays. We couldn't get anyone to do it except... who actually laid the floor in the end? Yeah, the monks laid it. They started about 8, 9 o'clock in the evening. They worked all night. About 4 o'clock in the morning. Ajahn was involved, big time. Uh, Santuti, he was part of it. I think Mutita, I think, was here. They finished this. They did an excellent job. uh, In the evening, there was just concrete there. And in the morning, they'd finished it all. And they had a full day the next day for the opening ceremony. And that's called giving. It's not just writing out a check. It's like giving your assistance, giving your time, giving your cheering you on. That's what giving is. And that type of giving in meditation... I've asked a few people to do this, and it's a very powerful act of meditation. When you sit down, you cross your legs, close your eyes, say, I'm going to give this hour as my gift to the Buddha, or to my teacher, or somebody who inspired you. Like, maybe I give this hour to Handaka, who inspired you. So you can actually, um, it's not for you. I'm just giving this, not expecting anything back in return. And that gift makes the meditation a much deeper experience. You're not expecting anything back for yourself. It's your gift. And so that takes away the sense of self. And at the end of the meditation retreat, it doesn't matter. You've got something, you haven't got something, but you're given something. Remember your dad. He used to be a great man, you know. Mervyn Mendes, and you can actually remember him. How proud he would be that you are sitting meditation in this hall here in Perth. So he said, I'm gonna give this hour to my father. It's a beautiful thing to do. It changes the whole way you're meditating. You're not trying to get something out of it, get enlightened or get nimitas or whatever. You're not getting for yourself, you're giving. So that's Chakra. The next one is called Patinissaga. Which Patinissaga is like renouncing, uh, letting go of stuff, not trying to get stuff, and that was where you have um, the simile of the, the best simile I could get was a hot air balloon. And a hot air balloon, you know, you go up in the hot air balloon, you go as high as you can, but you can't go any higher. And so you see what ballast do you have in the basket of the balloon? You throw everything out. Everything which is unnecessary, you know, all your food, uh, warm clothing, throughout your husband. Throughout. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and so it's just you, the basket and the balloon. You go up very high then. And then you think, how can I go higher? So you think, okay, I'm going to let go of the basket. You untie the basket from the balloon, you just hang on to the balloon. The basket is gone. A basket stands for your body. You just you hanging on to a balloon. And then you get so high, but you can't go any higher. So what do you do? You throw you off. And then the balloon goes all the way to Nibbana. See what you can let go of. See what's in there which you don't really need to keep holding on to. And that's like the way of letting go. So you have less and less and less and less possessions. This is meditation. I'm not trying to strip you of all your assets before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit learning how to let go of stuff. And then, Jaya the next one is called Muti. And Muti is like freedom. And people find it hard to understand what freedom truly is. When have you really felt free? You're in this retreat center where you have like rules to keep, precepts. You can't eat whatever you want. You know, you've got quite a good choice over there in the kitchen. But then you can only eat at a certain times. And you allow yourself to be put in this place which is like a prison. You've got little cells. you're not supposed to go over here or go over there and (laughs) if you really really get into this place some people even get to go into solitary confinement solitary retreat (laughs) for a few weeks what do you do that for? that's called punishment isn't it? but how many of you come on a place like this and you feel so free? When I become a monk, so many rules I have to keep, so many things I just cannot do, not allowed, not permitted. It's amazing how free you feel. Because there's two different types of freedom. One is called the freedom of desires. So, whatever you want, you can get. You know, after a bit of work, that's the freedom of desires. The second freedom is the freedom we aspire for in monasteries or in retreat centers, the freedom from desires. You just don't have any desires. It's a nice, peaceful place. You're safe. It may not be the food you like, but you've got enough food. It's not a mansion you stay in, but it's comfortable. You've got hot water to wash in. It may not be fragrant water, but it's clean enough. What more do you want? And after a while, you find you've been stay here for eight or nine days, and you don't want anything at all. Not compared to what people have in the world outside. And you feel you're free from so many desires. That's the type of freedom which is part of letting go. Not the freedom of desires, the ability to get what you want when you want it, but the freedom from desires. You just don't have desires or they're just not relevant. And the last one is called Analiya, And that is when uh, it comes from the word Aliya, and you may know that word from the Himalaya, Himalaya mountains, that's where the snow settles. Or there's another Alia, the Meghalaya, it's a state in North India, that's where the, the clouds uh, hang out or live, in other words, so many of them. It's always cloudy up there. And so, alia is, is where something goes to and sticks. And analia is nothing sticks to you. It is like the simile of the lotus. You can urinate on a lotus, and all that stinky urine just falls off it, leaves no trace at all. The lotus still smells like a lotus. Or you can pour Chanel Number no. 5 over that lotus, and none of that perfume stays on the lotus. It still s- smells like a, a, a lotus afterwards. Please excuse me, but Chanel Number no. 5, I think, was what some of my girlfriends used to use when I was a layperson. But apparently, it's still quite popular. Is that the case? Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, just show us how old I am. Those are like what I call the four ways of letting go. Actually, not what I call it. That's how the Buddha described it. And I gave a talk on that years and years ago. And it's that uh, YouTube talk. was one of the most well-downloaded. It's over a million. 2. Sorry? 2.2 2 million. 2. 2 million. <clears throat> wow. You know how much I got out of that? <laughs> I let it all go. <laughs> Nothing. Very good. Okay. So, the four ways of letting go, and that's you know part of the four noble truths, number three. In meditation, what's different if a person has short breath and long breath? As we need to know and concentrate on our breath. No, you don't. When we do, I. Will, please excuse me. I apologize that I've given two morning talks so far. The first one was on letting go, and I never really finished it. And the next one was supposed to be on the breath, and I didn't get even onto the breath yet. I was just preparing for it this morning. So anyway, uh, when actually you do start uh, becoming aware of the breath, it confused me too. It says be aware of a short breath, breathing in short, breathing out short, then breathing out in long, breathing out long. What is a short breath or a long breath? How short does it have to be? Very short, like short to medium? or And a lot of times my breath was not short, wasn't long, it was just kind of average. So I must be doing something wrong, not following the Buddha's instructions. So this means that when you understand what the Buddha was saying here, He was wanting you just to know, just whether it's average, short, long, extra long, or whatever. It didn't matter which one. You don't choose how long your breath is going to be or how short it's going to be. Your job is not to choose at all. Let the breath come in, let the breath go out. The body decides how much breath you need and when it needs it. You just kind of know. It gives you something else to focus on when you're watching the breath to make it a little bit more interesting. And of course... In many traditions, like you know the forest tradition of Northeast Thailand, they wouldn't worry about whether it's a short breath or a long breath. All they do is, as you breathe in, you say to yourself, buddha, and as you breathe out, toh, buddha, buddha, buddha with the breath. That was an alternative which fulfilled uh, those parts of anapanasati. In other words, you give the breath something extra, like a little mantra, you say to yourself to make it more interesting so you can see it without losing your mindfulness. After a while, when you know the mindfulness was established on the breath, you wouldn't need those extra like crutches and saying buddho, buddho, or long breath, short breath, because you'd have the breath quite clearly in your mind. When we came to Perth, using the word buddho didn't really work because it was talking to Australians, and they didn't really have the same... Um, resonance, and they didn't realize the power of something like Bodhou to Thai people. And so I tried other things. The first thing I tried for Westerners, because I wanted to make it something more useful that they could relate to, was as you breathe in, you say to yourself, shut. As you breathe out, up. <laughs> shut up, <laughs> shut. <laughs> And that's what they did. They laughed. I was supposed to be serious. But then these days, you usually find that the words you say with the breath, which seem to be the most popular amongst Westerners, and people are being Westernized with their educations, breathing in something like peace, and breathe out, let go. Breathing in peace, breathe out, let go. But you have, those words have to mean something to you almost as if you can visualise it. You you know, put peace into some very strong idea. So it's not just a word, it's something which has a strong meaning to you. And of course, as you breathe out, let go. There's so many things you can let go of in your life. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the problems. You know, the, the problems don't disappear, they just have some space from them. So when you go back to facing those problems, you've got far more clarity. You can see solutions that you never saw before. But don't try and just, oh, I haven't done a short breath yet. So do a short breath. (laughs) Now do do a long breath. If you want to have some fun, do you know the the backwards breath meditation? Have you ever heard of how to do backwards breath meditation? So, very quickly, close your eyes, breathe in and out three times. After a third breath, open your eyes. And it's easy to do. I guarantee that you started off with an in-breath first. Mm-hmm. In then out, in, out, in, out. Now, when I say go... Do the three breaths again, but start with the out breath first. Out, and then in. Out, in, out, in. Okay, go. You'll find it's completely different. It's weird, but it feels different. That's called backwards breath meditation. Breathe out first, then in. You can try it. After a while, it becomes normal again. But anyway, when you start, it gives a little bit of more interest to the breath. So at the beginning of the breath meditation, it's easier to watch. The next question. Can you do the walking meditation while you are walking fairly fast? Yes, you can. Some meditators like the fast walking meditation, especially if you've got some um, bus to catch or... If, oh, please excuse me, that you don't always have to do it slow. Often it becomes slow, just naturally. But I still remember at a conference, you know, a few years ago, I was always going to some conference somewhere, and now this conference is a Buddhist conference. They have these like breakout sessions, and they have one moderator for each session, and then the moderator comes back and reports to the whole group. You know, their conclusions of their session. And this um, lady, she was chosen to be the moderator. And then, now would the Venerable so and so please go to the lectern and report on the findings of your um, breakout session? Yes. <laughs> and she rose up from her chair. You could say mindfully, but really slowly. And then she turned around and started doing the slow walking meditation to the lectern, because that was her practice. And then even the, 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 the big boss in charge of the conference said, can you please hurry up? <laughs> We've only got about f- 10 minutes for each person. And it took her five minutes to get to the lectern. So she said, OK, come back. And she turned around and came back and she said nothing, didn't have time. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not exaggerating, that's what happened. And it was just a nice little uh, object lesson. It's nice to do a slow walking meditation if you have the time, but if you do need to look after other people, remember compassion and care for others? So, you know, your job was to be a moderator and report to everybody else what happened. Not just to show off your walking meditation. <laughs> and it's also, you know, I find that, you know, if you have a poor stomach or something, that's one of the monk's problems. You know, you've got a sore stomach. And if you walk fast, you get some exercise, and sometimes, you know, things start to move inside of you. So, you know, fast meditation sometimes can be really good, get some energy up. But a lot of time, I prefer the, walk, the slow walking meditation. And the slow walking meditation—it's maybe it's not as much good exercise, but you can really start to feel, you know, in your feet and everything else what's moving. No, I won't do that because I've (laughs) also—no, I'm not (laughs) going (laughs) to. You can actually check this out on the internet. I also developed. I always thought, people told me this if you come to a place like Australia, you've got to adapt to local situations. So that's all. <laughs> yes, you know what's coming. I'm not going to do it, no. <laughs> if you want to, okay, please come up. <laughs> no, come on. Yeah, go on. He's Indonesian, but this is the kangaroo walking meditation. From <laughs> Yeah, from there, yes. <laughs> You can get, get camera. out. <laughs> so, instead of actually doing walking meditation here in Australia, the kangaroos don't walk; they hop. So they start off you know with a can- <laughs> <laughs> and very mindfully. Yes, <laughs> that's called. <cool. laughs> Thank you. Go sit down. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's called kangaroo walking meditation. And that's not such a joke as you may think, because if you're doing walking meditation in one of those rooms there, and people are getting a bit bored or tired, (laughs) and if you do just one there and back again, kangaroo walking meditation, the people in that room get a big boost of energy and (laughs) happiness, and it's a wonderful gift for them. So that's why I encourage people to do the kangaroo walking meditation as a gift of happiness for those other people who are in that room. During my walking meditation, I notice that although my focus is on my foot, the texture sensation and the sound of my shoes on the gravel, I am still aware of everything around me. I'm aware of the bird noise, for example, but don't entertain any thought about it further. Is this a reflection of the mind, being aware but still mindful? Yes, still mindful, still aware. But as you actually meditate more, as you keep on walking, you find that your field of attention tends to zoom in. You know, that zooming in, because sometimes I've been invited to all sorts of places to, to have lunch or give a talk. So I do use Google Maps, and that's what you do. You, you see your destination, you zoom in on it, so you can actually find the streets where you need to go. And As you zoom in, what's on the outside tends to vanish and just only what's in the center remains. That's what happens with the the breath meditation, but also happens with the walking meditation. You may start off being aware of so many things, but I make sure you don't look to the left or the right. You keep your gaze about a body length in front of you for safety, but you don't look up this way or that way, just a body length in front of you. And then you walk, and after a while, things on the outside, the periphery, they just disappear. And so you actually start to focus in. Is mind consciousness the same thing as mindful awareness of the inner thoughts? No. Mind consciousness is something totally different. It's a process of just the mind knowing many things. Only one thing at a time, though. Mindful awareness of the inner thoughts. Sometimes those inner thoughts disappear, and those inner thoughts disappear in the jhanas. When those inner thoughts disappear, your still mind, mind consciousness is still working, but it's not aware of thoughts. It's aware of something much more refined than those thoughts. You can be aware of silence. I'll demonstrate that. What were you aware of a few moments ago? You weren't thinking, most of you. You were waiting for me to start talking next. You never know when I was going to start speaking again. You were silent, no thoughts. It's not that hard. Problem is, we just don't notice silence. We're so used to thinking that when things stop. Kind of weird. It's quite cool, isn't it? Anyway, in my practice I have a moment of having had no thoughts, not even the breath, but I'm wide awake. Was my mind unconscious at that moment? Hope not. No, of course it wasn't. You're wide awake. A lot of times that when the body starts to disappear and then the thoughts about the world of the five senses start to disappear, then you're perfectly aware. But you're not aware of anything out here in the world. You're aware of you know, the mind. And that part of the mind is very blissful. You're aware of bliss. You know, the inner bliss, and when that starts to settle down, I'm talking about the jhanas now, the fourth jhana it's uh, the bliss of contentment. please don't call it equanimity for a long time I, I, that word didn't sort of didn't match the experience. Equanimity is just basically too boring, it didn't have enough oomph to it. Contentment is a much nicer word for that bliss of the fourth jhana. But the most important reason I mention this now is because this is where mindfulness reaches its ultimate purity. You can't get more mindful than the fourth jhana. Still blissful, but perfectly awake. And the mindfulness, which is in this particular case... It is a mind consciousness mindfulness is not aware of any other senses that's why it gets a lot of power and purity intellectually, oh my goodness, <laughs> It is clear the five aggregates are not me, mine, or self great how how however, having had a taste of this in meditation, emerging dissolution and joy. How to sustain and establish oneself in this, especially when there is intense Vedana? Intense Vedana. You know, sometimes the Vedana can be there, but just because it's intense, it doesn't mean it's you, or part of you, or owned by you. If I understand correctly, I must get lost in order for no one to experience jhana's enlightenment. So how do do I do this? The more you try and do it, the more impossible it is. You don't do it. You stop all that doing. You become a passenger, not a driver, which is far more accurate. And you just allow things to disappear. One of the causes for disappearance is called stillness. Samadhi again. This was an experience which... uh, really uh, I experienced when I went to a Zen monastery as a student. It was up in the north of England. In those days I was a devout Buddhist but there was not many places to go as a Buddhist. I didn't have the luxury of choosing this particular tradition or that tradition. So there was a Zen monastery in the north of England. They were doing a weekend retreat so I signed up. I had no idea what Zen meditation was. And of course, you know, you there's only a few of us on this little retreat. And it was in an old barn, and we were just facing a wall, and the teacher would come behind us with his head stick. And if you were slightly nodding, you get whacked on the back. I never got whacked. Honestly, it wasn't that I, I had no Sloth and Torpa. Sloth and Torpa was there. What happened was the guy next to me, he got whacked first. <laughs> And I had no sloth and torpor after that. <laughs> but anyway, the nice thing which happened, I knew about meditation in the Theravada tradition. I knew how to keep you know, my mind in the present moment and, and no, no thoughts. You're supposed to keep your eyes open. And we're just staring at this whitewashed wall. Staring out there for about half an hour, 45 minutes, not thinking, just, you know, pretty poised in this present moment. And that was when the wall disappeared. It was weird, because, you know, you're seeing a wall. It was right there. And then it was no wall anymore. I, at that time, you know, the culture of the 60s and 70s in UK, it was a drug culture. I didn't take drugs, but it was weird. I wasn't afraid. And so when the wall disappeared, I thought, wow, that's cool. <laughs> And of course, afterwards, you figure out, because you're a scientist, a great piece of data, what did it mean? All it meant was that's what the eye does, the sense of eye, the sense of sight. If nothing moves, it turns off. You do that all the time when you close your eyelids. I close my eyelids, I can see the inside of my eyelids, first of all, only for a second or two, and then nothing happens, so the sense of sight turns off, just what computers do. If you don't click the mouse everything turns off. And that's what your senses do. Smell? Can you smell? A lot of times, only if there's something changes in the aroma of the room, then you smell. Sound? There's always something going on in the sound, that's why it's on most of the time. But when? There's nothing to actually to see. There's nothing to hear, there's nothing to smell, taste, touch then those senses vanish. That's why we have stillness as a way of turning off the five senses. And sight is easy to turn off. It's a sound and physical touch. That's the hard ones to, to turn off. But you can turn them off. And When they do, what's left? That's then the, the, fifth, the sixth sense, the mind Consciousness. And that's actually one of the reasons we meditate, to access that mind consciousness and see what it really is. How important is it to maintain your meditation posture without moving? You're going to move. So, unless you want to try to be dead. (laughs) It's not important at all. What's more important is your posture is comfortable. So when you meditate, when you sit down, try and get a comfortable position when you start. And then, uh, so your, your body can disappear. If it's really comfortable, then after a while you can't feel it anymore. And you do that almost deliberately. When your physical sense of touch is mostly gone, I say mostly gone because your body is relaxed but there's something else moving. Uh, 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 your breath it's one of the reasons why the breath is part of the meditation path everything else is still but your breath will still keep moving and so that's why the body disappears and then the breath takes over naturally when you look for it or you don't look for it it comes to you and then once the breath starts to appear you can calm that down as it calms down, the joy, the piti-sukha, which comes with the breath, which I'll talk about tomorrow, if I get around to, to breath meditation, <laughs> then it becomes very joyful. And then you, that is a chitta-sankara. It comes from the, the mind. It's what the mind adds on to the breath. The breath is not beautiful, delightful, but that's how it appears when you start to get very still and then that joy takes over and that uh, takes over from the breath. And the breath has done its job, it vanishes. So that sense of touch is gone and now you have the mind sense giving you this beautiful experience, which means you can stay there for long periods of time. And that's become the Meditation posture is not important. And I say that because the evidence, which really, all these meditations I've done over those years, and after my first no, first year as a monk in northeast Thailand, I got scrub typhus. And scrub typhus, there was a little bug in the forest. Not bug, it's like a mite. And when we'd meditate in the forest, we would get bit, it It's only a tiny little bite; you couldn't even notice it at first. And then you got the scrub typhus from that. But according to the the Thai Health Authority, there was no scrub typhus in that part of Thailand. The reason was because the locals had a natural immunity. It was only the Westerners. We were the ones who caught it. So when you got the scrub typhus, it was like typhoid. So the same symptoms. So they gave you all these antibiotics. And I remember that so well. People have this idea that, you know, all these um, health workers in Thailand, the nurses, are just so petite and pretty. And you've got to be careful if you're a young monk. It was only 23, 24 at that time. You've got to be very careful. You know, we, we used to say that as a forest monk, you don't have to be aware of tigers, but many monks got bitten by Thai girls. <laughs> That's an old joke, and died, <laughs> became lay people. But the, the one which was the nurse in the monk's ward, she was built like a water buffer, no joke. <laughs> and she had to be, because she didn't inject you, stabbed you. Remember those recyclable needles? They'd boil them up, steam them up to try and sterilize them. They'd been used so many times. And with, I did have lots of good loving kindness, but not for that nurse. <laughs> My backside was so sore, so sore, you know, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, for about, about three or four weeks. <laughs> that, that was hard. But anyway, so then just after about three or four weeks, I can't remember exactly how long now, i just like, I had absolutely zero energy having had a fever, some disease for such a long time. And I remember just one day, I just decided, I don't know why, that why not try and do some meditation? Not sort of sitting cross-legged, I just couldn't do that. But just however I was laying on the bed, with legs all over the place, like when you have a fever, you don't worry about the posture, you just... You get your body as comfortable as possible and let go. And that was one of those times it really worked. You got into some of the deepest of meditations. And that was mind-blowing. I wasn't so concerned about being mind-blowing, but just the contrast between having a body which was so sick with a fever and then just being totally rid of your body for a while and blissing out. And when I opened my eyes afterwards, came out of that deep meditation, just looked and just... I did notice a posture. I have never seen that posture in any meditation book in my life. Arm this way and arm another arm that way, legs all over the place. But it worked. And I proved it for myself anyway. The posture is not important. It can be helpful but it's not crucial. Okay, oh, it's nine o'clock now. So there's a few more I haven't done today, but we'll get them later on. But anyway, those are very nice questions, so thank you for asking them, and hopefully the answers were of use to you. Any other short ones? No, all long questions. Okay. Okay. Very good. So it's two minutes past nine. Is that good? Do you want another question? Noria? Okay, hands up. Okay, so just one of the questions here. Oh, this is an easy one, but a good one. When you have a problem, do you meditate and the solution comes to you? Yes. How do you go about solving problems? For those of you... Have you explored the grounds around here and found what they used to call a secret garden? And there's a, a tree there, a Bodhi tree, I, th- I think. Well, yes, yeah, a Bodhi tree. And it had a plaque there in memory of Wani Nut Rungson. Wani Nut uh, was one of our members. She died of a cancer. But I remember her coming to one of the retreats we used to have in North Perth. And her job at the time was in the social services, and in particular, her job was to decide which kid would be taken away from her parents, especially her mother, because the kid was in really grave danger. You know the parents might be you know, drug dealers or addicts and it was a very tough decision to take a kid away from your mum or dad. But she said that sometimes she had to do that. So it was a very, very stressful job. And I remember her coming to the retreat, again, one of these late at night arrivals, and it was because she tried to tie up the loose ends of these really important decisions that she had to make. And... But she knew how to meditate. She was good at that. Lucky, do you remember in that? Yeah. And she was very good at letting things go. And so when uh, she came, she forgot all about the decisions she had to make after the retreat. But after about three or four days of meditation, she came up to me in the interviews and said that she was meditating really peacefully. She wasn't thinking about the problem. So mine wasn't wandering at all. But then all these solutions came up to these problems, which you know she would have to find answers for when she finished the retreat. So she went back to her room and wrote down all those solutions on a piece of paper, and she said these amazing solutions, are so innovative. And she thought, now where did these come from? Her mind was peaceful and still, and the answers were just popping up for her. And that is actually how problems are solved. And because I was a theoretical physicist, there's one of those theoretical physicists uh, over in Cambridge who's now got a Nobel Prize for physics, Ryan Josephson, and he was Welsh. And his Nobel Prize came for uh, quantum tunneling, which made the foundation for supercomputers at that time. So he got awarded the Nobel Prize... He had to argue his theory because, you know, the leading physicists at the time said it's impossible. But he proved it is possible and he got the prize for that. And he got that after meditating, meditation, the answers popped up. It wasn't Buddhist meditation, it was the, um, what was it, TM meditation, yeah. But then just, it's amazing just how when you become really peaceful and still you stop thinking, it gives the mind the opportunity to see things in a different way, to see things as they truly are, not how you're taught they are. So have there been any Nobel Prizes yet in Indonesia? Maybe when you go back. In Sri Lanka. Why not? You've been meditating for years. In Australia, in Australia, in UK. Yeah, of course you asked. Been many there. Okay. Anyway, that was the last question then. So, don't think about the problem. The solution comes to you. Sadhu, Sadhu. SADHU! <laughs> okay, I wish you a pleasant night. It's a beautiful to go back into your room to meditate or to sleep. You can hear the rain coming out, down, and you're nice and safe and warm and dry in your room. It's very cosy. That's one of the reasons I remember liking rain. You know, you're in a nice, safe, dry, cosy place. And it felt great, okay.